worship God for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great privilege it is to gather as your people and to sit under the sound of your voice. And we pray now, please, that you would uh, use this time, the, the, uh, the whole occasion we've been together, but this time particularly as we wrestle with your word to transform our minds, uh, renew our minds, that we might know you better uh, and know your good, holy, pleasing and perfect will. Be able to approve that and love that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to uh, talk to you a little bit about what drives people. We're in a passage of the Bible tonight, Romans chapter 15, where we get a significant insight into a person's life, a life that was very driven. But I've been thinking about drivenness just this week because of the Olympics. I, I don't know if you follow much sport and so on, but this is the week that they announced the squad for the uh, swimming team that will go to the Olympics. So 35 people have been um, chosen to represent Australia in, uh, in the Olympics. And, and if there's ever a group of driven people, it's swimmers in the Olympic team. Is that right? Anyone of you know much about swimming? Um, I don't know, you know, four hours a day, up and down in a pool, just brain-numbing looking at that line on the bottom of the pool up and down. You think you put writing on it or something so they could read as they did it. But, uh, you know, that's just, a, that's obsessive. That's, but there was a race this last week, the 100-metre final of the women's, um, and uh, it, it was won in a time of 52 seconds, 52 seconds. That's for 100 metres, not 25 metres. Uh, 100 metres, 52 seconds. And um, it was won by Emma, Emma McEwen, Jono's sister. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the mind boggles, doesn't it? But there you are. It was won by Emma. And um, uh, Kate Campbell came second. Uh, and she came second by 0.25 of a second. Like that's this distance, over 100 metres. Um, and that's after... She's, she, Kate Campbell's made it to the Olympics. She'll be a, this is her fourth Olympics that she'll be going to. So she's been swimming hour after hour in a pool for years of her life. And she lost. Well, she lost after all that training. But she lost by just that much. What are you, what are you thinking to yourself as you go to the Olympics? How much more training do I need to do to win that little bit more? Now, that's obsessed. That's driven. And I want you to think with me just for a moment. Um, what you'd have to do, what, what, what drives people to be that obsessed? I mean, it's very different sporting back in the day. I don't know if you've seen this, but back in the day, there was a photo doing the rounds of a football player who turned up pre-game with a smoke in his mouth as he was about to go on. I mean, you just can't do that anymore in the sports world, but you've got to be completely obsessed about it. And what drives people, do you think, to do that? Give me your thoughts. What drives people to achieve like that? Any thoughts? Well, yeah, yeah, it's the pursuit of glory. The, there's a passion for, for glory. <laughs> yeah. There's a talent, but not just talent, is it? Because I've got lots of talent. <laughs> yeah, there's... Did someone say no? <laughs> oh, you don't know me very well, do you? Um, there's, yeah, there's... Talent will get, you know, is important, of course, but what drives you to, to apply that talent to a certain thing? Yeah. What was that? Comp yeah, there's, there's a competitiveness. 
But there's a sense in which you want to ask why are people so competitive? Now, for what it's worth, I, I, there's, a, there's a negative and there's a positive. There's a kind of a, some people are driven to compete like that and, and pursue that kind of thing because of a, a hole within them. They need approval. They're desperate for uh, acceptance. They're desperate to be glorious. And so there's a real need. And there's a kind of a positive thing that um, it, it, it's not just filling a need, it's actually achieving something that um, will give them something they're desperate. You know, it's all this thing happens for people. There can, in all of that, be noble reasons to be driven. So a lot of this stuff is actually just filling holes and it's about glory and it can be quite about me in the end. But for many people to be driven, there's a drivenness that can come uh, that's a noble driver, a noble driver. The love of people, the love of others. Now, you don't see that much in sport. Um, lots of men and women who pursue careers, who want to climb the corporate ladder, do it for money. It's not love. But there are some causes that people are driven to pursue out of a very noble reason. Now, this I want to pay attention to because... We're talking about a very driven man, Romans chapter 15. If you've been with us over the last little while, you'll know that we're in the midst of a letter that this man Paul wrote to an ancient people in Rome, um, to the Christians there in Rome, and uh, he wrote it from uh, a, a, a Corinthian city, and he's written off to this group. And as the letter's gone on, it's been full of rich theology, deep ideas, great, um, fantastic concepts. But as he comes to the end of the letter, chapter 15 and 16, you now get him talking about himself. He now talks about his plans and what he did and how he was moving and going through this and so on. He gets very personal. Um, and it's an insight, actually, into the life of this man who is very unique. He travels extensively. We'll hear about that in a moment. Uh, and at the cost of his own life, he was driven to pursue these travels. There was a great intentionality about what he did. And here's the thing just to notice. As we listen in on Paul talk about his lifestyle, I want you just to remember, we're not Paul. Nowhere does he say in describing his plans and his movements and travels for us to do the same thing. Paul is particularly unique in history. He's not just unique um, among his generation. He's unique in all of human history. He plays a role in God's purposes that is incredibly unique. It really is quite astonishing to think about this man. Um, now, be, being unique, we can't look at his plans and what he did. I mean, one of the things he did there in verse uh, 28 and 29 is he, he goes to Spain. Now, I mean... The Bacons, I hope you didn't read that years ago and decide we ought to go to Spain, Paul went to Spain. No, you don't do that. You don't read Paul went to Spain and say we should go to Spain. You don't do what he did. But here's the thing. If we can get beneath what he did and look at why he did it, that's now applicable to us. And I want to suggest to you the thing that drove him wasn't, an emptiness and a hole and the pursuit of glory. It wasn't any of those things for himself. What drove him was something deeper, more wonderful, something massive, something so big that wherever you are in your life, it will apply to you. 
In fact, if you're here tonight and you're not even a follower of Jesus, this will apply to you. What drove Paul will speak to you. So what I want to do is consider firstly just his plans, what, what Paul did, his unique circumstances, uh, and then look at what drove him. We'll look at a couple of things that drove him and then think about his partnerships towards the end. So you're with me? Let me go through what he did uh, and show you how unique he is in human history. Start with me there at verse 15, chapter 15, verse 15. Grab your Bibles, open it up. I've written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me, here it is, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. So the grace of God, God graciously gave Paul a role and that role was to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now just quickly, what is Gentiles? We've done this before but it's worth just banging away on it again for a second. In the Jewish way of thinking, and Paul's a Jew, uh, the Bible's written by Jews, uh, in, in the Jewish way of thinking there's only two kinds of people in human history. There are, there are the descendants of a man called Abraham, uh, the Jews, uh, who were called Israel, and then there's everybody else, the Jews and the non-Jews. And the non-Jews are called Gentiles. So you just get Jew, Gentile is the way of breaking up humankind. And what Paul says here in verse 15 and 16 is that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, appointed him to be a minister to the Gentiles. And here it is, it's, it's, there's something once in a lifetime, actually not something once in history about Paul. And it's difficult to convey the magnitude of this in a few words, but let me try. God's plan has always been to save the nations of the earth. So right back from Genesis chapter 3, where humankind rebelled against God, rejected God, threw him off. Uh, God laid there just the moment that I will bring salvation. And then in chapter 12 of Genesis, he calls one man, Abram, and he says, I'm going to build a big nation under you. Your children's children's children will become a nation called the Jews, you see. And he says, I'm going to use you and your descendants to save the world. To save humanity, all the nations of the world. And then God does it. He, he brings from a descendant of Abraham, amongst the Jewish people, the Saviour, Jesus, who is a Jew. And this Saviour, Jesus, comes into the world, lives as a Jew, the great Jew. He dies, dies on a cross, dies on a cross deliberately to pay the penalty for sin that we deserve so that any who put their faith in him won't suffer the just judgment of God that you deserve. It will have been given to Jesus as our substitute so that you can be forgiven. He then rises to life again, conquering death, demonstrating once and for all that he has achieved reconciliation between sinful humanity and a holy God. And there is now no more death that we need to pay, face. Jesus dies, rises, and then chooses 12 followers. We, we call them the apostles. And they're all Jews. And he sends these Jews out to bring the news of his victory over death and sin and Satan. He sent, chooses these 12 to, to proclaim the news of his victory, the gospel, to the world. Well, particularly to the Jews. And they go out among the Jews. But then Jesus comes back 
comes back in a special appearance to put across them in Acts chapter 9 and appears especially to one man, a Jew, to Paul. Paul who calls himself abnormally born. He singles this man out, Paul, and says, I'm going to appoint you to be the one to cause the news of my victory in the death and resurrection and the reconciliation with God that I've achieved. I'm going to appoint you to be the one who takes this news to the Gentiles, to the nations, to break into the rest of the world with the saving news that I've always intended to bring to them. And so Paul is especially chosen on the Damascus Road. In, in the book of Acts, it's repeated three times, this calling of Paul, because it's so significant to world mission that he be appointed. But more than this, the New Testament tells us, Paul in this book, Romans chapters 10 and 11, particularly tells us that God then worked within the Jewish nation to harden them so that when Paul came and preached to them first, because he always went and preached to the Jews first, they would reject his message and cause him to be driven out to preach to the non-Jews, the Gentiles. Because God's sovereign purpose in, Paul in, in choosing Paul was to bring the gospel to the nations. And so Paul, Paul was the man who, Colossians chapter 1, fills up in his own flesh what was lacking in Christ's sufferings. What was lacking in Christ's sufferings? Well, not reconciliation with God. But what was lacking in Christ's sufferings was taking the saving news of his death and resurrection to the world. And Paul fills that up. He has a remarkable place in human history. So that chapter 15, verse 16. He is to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And the work that he undertakes is massive. He's very conscious in verse 17, 18 and 19 that it's God's work. God works through and through signs, wonders and miracles. Uh, it's a work that has a massive geographical extent. So verse 19, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. His purpose in all of this was, verse 21, to bring the news of Jesus to people who have not heard it before. Those who were not told about him will see, those who have not heard will understand. And just note this actually, verse 21 there is a quote from the Old Testament and it's a quote from the book of Isaiah. And this is just, just step aside for a moment. If, you, if you've had enough information so far, just have a snooze for a second. But let me give you this one. In the book of Isaiah, which is written many centuries before Jesus, there's four songs, poems, that are sung about a servant who will come who will save the world towards the end of the book of Isaiah. They're called the servant songs. And um, Jesus fulfills those servant songs. He comes as the true final servant of Isaiah to save the world. But astonishingly, Paul picks up and quotes those servant songs twice. You get it quoted in, in Romans chapter 15 where he takes chapter 52 of Isaiah, one of the servant songs, and applies it to himself. He's the servant who's bringing the news to the world. But he also quotes it in Acts chapter 13 where he quotes, uh, identifies himself as the servant of Isaiah. And again you see this sense that Paul is aware 
that, that he, he plays a significant part in human history, in God's plans to bring salvation to the world. And so he's wanting to go and keep preaching this news. Verse 24, he plans to go to Spain. So, so let me give you some... He's been in Jerusalem, he's preached through Turkey, uh, he's gone over into Greece, this kind of area where Corinth and so on is, and he wants to get to Rome, which is further west, that uh, uh, peninsula there, but he wants to go from Rome to Spain, which is even further west. Um, but here's the deal. He's kind of moving towards Rome, towards Spain, and he writes to the Romans and says, actually, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. He's going to go back on a massive sidetrack, verse 24. And he needs to go back to Jerusalem to take a gift of money for the Jewish Christians there who were going through a terrible famine and needed financial support. Uh, and he invites their support in this task, verse 30, uh, 28 and, and 30, he wants their prayers and so on because the task that he's engaging in taking the, the money back to Jerusalem is going to be very difficult. He knows that verse 31, he will be in danger from unbelievers in Judea as he brings the contribution back to, to Jerusalem. And then, having done that, going back to Jerusalem, he plans to head back to Rome and over to Spain and he wants the Roman Christians to support him in prayer and financially. Verse 28, after I've completed this task and have made sure that they will receive this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. Now there's the picture. And I want to just alert you to a couple of quick things before we go to the substance of what I want to talk to you about. First one is this. Paul and Jesus can't separate them. Um, you can't have a Christianity that's a Jesus Christianity or a Paul Christianity. You, you can't love what Jesus teaches but not love what Paul teaches because Paul is appointed by Jesus to be his spokesperson, to be the one who fills up in his flesh the finished work of Christ to bring the news to the, to the world. Paul plays a significant place under God in God's purposes. Paul is deeply united with Jesus. So when you find things in Paul you find difficult, you've got to, this is Jesus' word, this is his spokesman speaking to us. Just another quick thing to note, as you go through chapter 15, you'll see lots of different locations talked about. You can go and visit them today. It's just a reminder that what you're dealing with in the Bible is not myth and legend. It's in, uh, it's in solid historical circumstances. The evidence for the Bible being true and reliable is right there in front of you. Again, it positions us to appreciate that Jesus is true. He is real. Now, there's the kind of picture of what Paul is doing. Um, and it's unique. But what isn't unique is what drove him. Why did he do all of this? So we ask these guys up here, you know, not just what they're doing, but why? That's the question. What's driving them to do this? Well, what drove Paul? I'm going to give you two things that drove him. The first one I think is obvious. The second one's deeper and less obvious. Let's step our way through them. What drove him firstly? The obvious one. I hope it's obvious. The thing that drove him was the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That people be saved from hell into heaven. 
that they be brought to the obedience of faith, the obedience that comes from faith. That is his great duty and his great concern, that people be brought back under God, under his rule, saved. That's what salvation is, to be brought back into relationship with God as God is our Lord. And that's the thing, saving people. And I want to just note this. It's important to appreciate this because missionary work in our day and age is under attack. Lots of people are dismissive of Christian missionaries because it feels to them like Christian missionaries are just taking Western culture to the noble savage in some other part of the world and imposing their culture on the other country. And that feels wrong to us. It feels racist. It feels superior. It feels like the Christian missionaries have got all the answers. And shouldn't they just sit together and talk together and discover together? Not according to Paul. According to Paul, he goes and he preaches. He declares a message. He teaches them what they don't know. But in our day and age, that feels bad. It feels wrong. Now, it is true that not all missionary work over the centuries has been done as wisely as it could be done. There has been lots of harm on occasion caused. But step back a little with me. Consider deeply the claims that Paul makes through this letter that he wrote to the Roman Christians. And let me take you through it. Romans chapter 1. What Paul tells us about is that there's a God who is the real living God who is angry at his world. The holy God is wrathful. Why? Because humans have failed to honour him as God or give thanks to him. But in our thinking we've become foolish and exchanged the glory of God for the glory of immortal men, and for mortal men, birds and so on and so forth. We've created idols that we've worshipped instead of following God. And so God is rightly angry. There is no one righteous, not even one, says Paul. There is no one who looks to God, who seeks God. All have become worthless. What Paul paints for us is a picture of righteous judgment because of human sin, which will find itself leading people to eternal condemnation, hell. And then in chapter 3 he says, the only hope of rescue from out of the judgment under the holy of God is the work of that same God who is gracious. He's not just angry at us, but he loves us at the same time. And while we were still enemies, he sends his son to die for us. To be, chapter 3, a propitiation in his blood, a sacrifice of atonement, so that by faith in him, by trusting his death in our place, we can be forgiven and restored. And that there's only one hope for the world that's Jesus. Now, that message only has the chance to save if it's preached. Come with me to Romans. This is so important. I want to take you there. From, come with me to Romans 10. Romans 10. I want to show you a deeply important set of logic here. It's kind of disturbing in our cultural day and age, but we need to get hold of it. Have a look there at Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Paul makes the point, the wonderful point, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, man, woman, everybody who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. 
There's the glorious truth of the gospel that God has provided for us. But look at verse 14. How can they call on the one they've not believed in? Now, when he asks that question, he expects you to come up with an answer. How can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they call on the one they've not believed in and be saved? Well, if they've not believed in him, they can't call on him to be saved. And so the answer is they can't. They can't call on someone they've not believed in. But look at his next question. And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? The answer? They can't. You can't find salvation if you don't believe in Jesus. And you can't find salvation in Jesus unless you hear of Jesus, says Paul. But look what he says next. How can they hear of Jesus without someone preaching to them? It's necessary that the news of Jesus be proclaimed. Because, verse 14, without the proclamation of Jesus, you won't get, you won't get to hear about Jesus and so you won't have belief in Jesus, you won't be able to be saved. And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful the feet of those who bring good news. Do you see the inescapable set of steps that Paul takes? Salvation is dependent on you calling on the name of Jesus. But to call on the name of Jesus, you have to believe in Jesus. But to believe in Jesus, you have to have heard of Jesus. And to hear of Jesus, you have to have someone come and tell you what you don't know. You have to have preachers. And so the missionary endeavour, says Paul, is critical. Now, that may raise all kinds of questions for you. You might be finding yourself thinking, are you saying, well, actually, is Paul saying, because I'm not saying this, I'm just, is Paul saying that without hearing about Jesus, you can't be saved? Yes. That's what he's saying. And he's saying that because of chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, that we're all under sin. We're all rebels deserving condemnation. There's only one name under heaven by which you can be saved, Jesus. And without hearing about that name, Jesus, you will suffer for your sins righteously and go to hell. Now, these are culturally very difficult things, but this is the inescapable claim of the, of the Bible, of what Paul teaches. Now, if this is true, what Paul says, the thing that follows is this. If it's true that there's a holy God, all humanity is under sin, our only hope is Jesus, and the only hope of knowing Jesus is preachers bringing that news to us, then what follows is this. Missionary activity. Proclaiming the gospel missionary activity is the most important work we can do. Heaven and hell is at stake. Life and death is at stake. Our culture despises missionary work. It rejects it as some kind of imperial imposition on others as superior white people. And so just remember, these were Jews. These weren't white people. Uh, but it pictures it in somehow as some kind of racist term. But our culture rejects it. And it's the same culture that rejects any thought of God as holy and just and will judge. It rejects any thought of human sin under the judgment of God. It rejects all of those things. And that goes hand in hand with the rejection of missionary work. As soon as you reject the thought of God as holy as a holy judge and reject human sin, 
soon as you reject those things, of course you'll reject missionary work. But the greater your conviction that God is who the Bible says he is and our desperate need is only solved in Jesus, the greater your conviction about those things and the greater your conviction the only way to know Jesus is through the proclamation of Jesus, the greater your concern will be to send missionaries out the greater your concern actually will be to preach to your friends and family the news of Jesus. However much it might impose on them, however much it might even hurt their culture, you will be determined to preach Jesus. In fact, I might offer this thought. The, the idea that protecting a culture even figures, even matters to the mission will be way down on the list of priorities. You know, we've had bushfires in recent years. And just picture with me a family trapped in a house where there's a bushfire front come roaring up the hill and uh, the, the, the police come to get the family out of the house. And as they come to the home, um, you know, it would be lovely to think that they had the time to go in and help them collect the artworks they've collected around the place and the, you know, all the paintings and the family albums and the furniture they love and the family pets. It'd be lovely to think they had time to gather all of that up and take it away from the house to keep it all safe as the fire came through. But what if they come to the house with the bushfire front just upon them and the rush of the moment means that they have to make a choice? Which would they choose? Would you... <laughs> Given a bushfire front rushing through, wouldn't you choose the family member before the painting on the wall? Wouldn't you choose, I mean, they've got a dog. Wouldn't you choose the family member and leave the dog? Hands up for yes. Actually, if it's a cat, it would make it much easier, that decision, wouldn't it? Um, This is deeply important to get hold of. Um, you know, we want missionaries who, uh, you know, are respectful and care about culture and so on. Chapter 14 of Romans says that culture does matter, that the Jewish culture matters for the Jews, the Gentile. It does matter. But I tell you what, when it comes down to life and death, what matters is that you save a person from hell. What good is it, says Jesus, that a person gains the whole world and yet forfeits their soul? He makes a clear priority between soul saved and life gained. It matters that the soul is saved from hell far more than the culture is protected. Now, that, please hear me, I'm not saying we completely trample all over these things. But I'm wanting to make clear that there's a priority issue here because of heaven and hell at stake. And the big driver for Paul was loving people so much that he would bring the news of Jesus that was the only hope of salvation from hell to them. And so he paid whatever price to deliver this message. There's the first big obvious driver for Paul that made him do what he did. But let me give you the second one that's less obvious, but once you see it, it's quite profound. The deeper driver for Paul was the love of God. 
It was the love of people that made me sad. But it was his love of God that drove him to do all that he did. I don't know if you noticed in chapter 15 how often the, the language of God, the Lord Jesus, the grace of God, the minister of God, um, his service, verse 17 of God, verse 18, these people come to obey God, verse 19, the reality of God's power in his life, verse 32, that the will of God be done. He is captivated by the truth of God in his life. He's captivated by the truth of God in life. And it was his honour that people hear of Jesus and find life in him. There's, there's a, have a look at this extraordinary statement there. Look at verse 16 again. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Look at, look at He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God. Do you see that? He's now no longer talking about them being saved from hell. The driver for him is that he might save the Gentiles to be an offering to God. That God might be thrilled by the Gentiles saved. That God might be honoured and glorified in the fruit of his evangelism. This again is a massive recalibration for us. I'm going to suggest it's the shift from being man-centred to God-centred. The shift from being having a living a life centered on human needs to a life centered on God's honor and it's a massive calibration recalibration paul reveals this deep and wonderful orientation of life where he sees everything owed to god god is such a great truth and reality in his life that everything's lived under god for god through god for his pleasure, his honour. You know, I've been trying to think um, over this last little while what, what experiences you might have had where you've seen a recalibration happen from living for yourself to living for others. And uh, one of the ones I've come upon is um, my wife and her parents. You thought I was going to say me. I thought about that for a moment too. But um, let me tell you, uh, you know, when you, grow up, when you grow up with parents, it's said that the stages, you go through three stages as a child under your parents. Let me give you the three stages. You can work out which stage you're in, actually. When you're growing up with your parents, for the first stage of your life, you just love them. You think they're awesome. You think they're the heroes. They're the greatest thing you know. You love your parents. But then you go through a stage where you start to hate them. You go through this time where you think they're the worst. They don't know anything. They're useless. Everyone else is better. You hate your parents. But then you grow out of that and you come to the stage where you now forgive your parents. And they're your three steps. Actually, which one are you in at the moment? Have you thought that? Love my parents up to about 14. Hate my parents. And then I come through that to forgive my parents and appreciate them again. Well, let me tell you about my wife. Kathy, uh, w w her parents uh, had a, um, I think it was a 60th wedding anniversary and a uh, 80th birthday. And Kathy wanted to put on a celebration for them. And I thought, great, let's take them to Macca's and we can give them a whole whatever they want to have. <laughs> <And> <laughs> but no, Kathy wanted to do it properly. 
she wanted to rent out a whole thing and you know and she did all of this work and I'm going Kathy what are you doing what are you doing and she's going well they're my parents and here's the deal she, she, she went through stages with her parents but she's now in a stage where their joy is her joy she didn't care how much it cost her to do all of this for the sake of them being thrilled and appreciating and being loved they wanted them to be loved she wanted them to be loved and feel great and for her that made her feel great do you see what's happened she's gone from being the teenager who's all concerned about herself and what her parents are doing to, to actually now being concerned for them and their well-being and finding her joy in them and i hope you move through those stages because there's something profound and beautiful about it where it's meant to be now here's what the apostle paul went through prior to coming to christ he was a zealous man but it was about himself he came to faith in christ and now he sees god for who he is a loving father the god who is holy and righteous the one by whom and through whom and for whom are all things the god who's given his only son to die for us such as his love for us and paul was melted by that and now is consumed with pleasing god having god be honored and that was his joy to see the gentiles be a fragrant offering to god that god would be thrilled have you come to that place in your life where you think about God like that? Have you come to the place where salvation and Christianity is not just about what you get, but rather it's becoming more and more about the joy God gains from your obedience of Him, the pleasure He gains from the fruit that you produce in your life? Are you finding yourself living more and more with Him at the centre? doing what you do for his sake not your own have you come to that place yet it's a journey we're on as christians get this but if you've got no sense of that in your life it's likely you're not converted yet because it's a work of the holy spirit to bring me to life dead in sin when i'm dead in sin what dead in sin means is that i have no regard for god i'm just thinking about me and people and what we want I'm the social justice warrior. That's my thing, you see. But as you get the Holy Spirit in your life, more and more you're captivated by what pleases Him. And what pleases Him actually is justice. What pleases Him is to, Micah 6, 8, is to do justice, to love mercy. Uh, these are the things to walk humbly before your God. And the salvation of men and women. The salvation of men and women and so paul the big driver for paul is that he might worship god by evangelism you know you ask someone when does the worship start and you go when's the singing start no 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 when paul gets the question when does the worship start his answer when does the worship start paul says when i evangelize people because this is my priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel so that the Gentiles might be an offering. It's his worship. God would focus, God honouring, God in his life. Now the last piece to this is the partnerships that means he pursues. And let me give you two and then apply it to us. 
The first partnership that he creates through all of this ministry is an obligation that the Gentiles have for the Jews. Have a look with me at verse 25, 26, 27. Now, however, I'm on my, on, my, on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. Now, just notice this, the language of the Lord's people is Paul's way of talking about the Jews, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And he talks there about why it mattered to bring money to the Jewish Christians who were poor in Jerusalem. And he tells us, verse 27, it's because the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings. And so they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. Paul is dealing with a deep and profound idea here that the Jews, the Gentiles being blessed spiritually was because the Jews suffered. Because God brought the Saviour through the Jews. It's because the Jews were hardened that the gospel went out to the Gentiles. The Jews are at the centre of us receiving the gospel. And so Paul says that creates an obligation for the Gentiles to give back, to give back to the Jews. Now, how do we apply this to us? I'll tell you what it does it helps us appreciate that the Jews matter to God and should matter to us. There is no place for racism against the Jewish people. We need to care about the Jewish people worldwide. But I want you to see too, this teaches something about obligations. If you receive a spiritual blessing from someone, that should create a sense of obligation to give back materially. That's what Paul's saying here. The Jews have given you spiritually, you now owe them. See verse 27, you have an obligation. Can I offer this thought? If you have been blessed by the ministries of a church, spiritually, you have an obligation to give to them financially. Lastly, Paul writes all of this to create a partnership because he wants to go to Spain, verse 24, and he wants them to assist him as he goes to Spain, and I dare say he wants them to support him financially as they go to Spain. Now there's <coughs> chapter 15. Let me give it an application to us and finish up. Paul is unique. No one can repeat his part in the history of God's work, but his heart, the driver, applies to us. And the thing that drove him, heaven and hell, saving people from hell. Nothing mattered like that mattered. Also, God's place in his life, that everything was about God, to honour God, to please God. And brothers and sisters, can I say to you tonight, that as you look out on the world, you can look out on the world through different lenses. And the social media world, the world of Facebook and Twitter and so on, the social media world will give you a set of lenses to look out on the world which won't always help you. The social media world will cause you to look out on the world and see simply human inequalities, racism, sexism, uh, oppression, patriarchy. It'll cause you to see these particular things that it's making much of. 
Now, those are problems. I'm not denying they're problems. But the lens the Bible gives you to look out on the world with is the one that sees injustice, but sees more importantly the invisible truth of heaven and hell, of people's need for a saviour, for the gospel of Jesus. Can I encourage you, every time you see a nature show that talks about the climate problems, which I'm not... But every time you see that, can I lodge in your mind that every time you see a nature show, say this to yourself. Yes, but. Yes, it's a problem. But salvation's a bigger need. Every time you see footage of protests about some new thing, can you do this? Yes, it's a problem. But mission matters more. And can I encourage you to see, therefore, your obligations? As Christians, we have obligations. We have an obligation to serve spiritually, to give financially, that God might be glorified in the work we do together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might help us have a due sense of obligation that we might see the world through the lens that you provide, the desperate need of people around us to hear the saving news of Jesus, that you might bless these people who go out from us to, to serve in whatever capacity, but especially to bring the cause, the gospel of Jesus to the world they go to. Please bless that work, but bless us here, please. Cause the gospel proclamation in this place to bear much fruit, we ask. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand with me and